Uh, Michael also told me if you don't want to email him, you can just visit him at the Ritz-Carlton anytime. Uh, just sample some of the things he's doing there. We're going to experience him here at sunrise as well, so that would be, that would be great. Please don't do that. I should probably mention that. <laughs> About five years ago, I received some of the uh, best advice I've ever received to apply both as a preacher and as a leader of a local church. It came from Rick Warren, who's the lead pastor at Saddleback Church in California, the author of some of you might know his most famous book, The Purpose Driven Life. And he was saying that one of the most distracting problems in the church in the Western world is that the church actually tries to teach too much. He kind of told his own story about growing up in church and waking up every Sunday. And first, he went to Sunday school to get a teaching and an application that was supposed to change his life. And then he would go to the worship service after Sunday school. He'd get a teaching and application that was supposed to change his life. Then he would go to a small group during the week. And he received a teaching and application that was supposed to change his life. Then he listened to a r- sermon on the radio, on media every week. And that sermon was supposed to change his life. And then he said, on top of that, I'm supposed to have seven quiet times. A quiet time every morning in the Bible and reading to change my life, to apply things to my life. He had, he had about 12 things to apply every week. He said, friends, we cannot change that much in a week. I'm good if I get one application a week for me to seek God about and follow through on every week. And if I had that one application, that one truth to meditate on and seek God on, that's pretty much good for me. The story goes that there's a new young preacher who was hired by a church, preaches his first sermon, with relevant teaching, it applies to to life, and the elder board comes up afterwards, pats him on the back, says, hey man, great sermon. We're so proud of you. We knew God would use you. The next Sunday, he comes up, he preaches the same sermon, and the elder board comes up and says, well, okay, well, good message again. Third Sunday comes up, he says, man, you, <laughs> great job, you must really like that sermon. Fourth Sunday, it's the same message, and the elder board comes to the preacher, they say, man, you know, that's a really fine message that you gave, but do you think next week you could preach a different sermon? To which the young preacher replied, I'll stop preaching it when you start living it. This Sunday, I'm not going to load you up with a new command or application to your life, but strengthen you to live it. To live out what God is already impressing on you. To trust and obey that command and application that you wrote down earlier, that you think God is calling you to do, to step out in, to take a risk on. For those of you who walked in late or maybe you're attending to kids, I asked every one of us to pause and write down one action, one decision, or one priority or attitude shift you believe God is asking you to step out on, to obey Him on, to trust and obey Him about. You don't have to be certain about it. Our text will help us deal with that. You don't have to be certain that it's God. But it might be something very straightforward from the Bible you just haven't stepped out on yet. It might be a complex decision that has wide-ranging implications or pretty straightforward, I really need to change my attitude about this kind of thing. It might be a conversation you've been putting off. I mentioned before an alarm clock that needs setting or just getting over your pride to ask somebody for help. What is that one thing you need to bring to the table this morning? Because I think the text that we're going to read this morning is going to strengthen you to step out and obey God. Trust Him and obey Him on that one thing. This is our last dance this morning in the book of Acts. It's Paul's journey to Rome. 
And through Paul's journey, you're going to be strengthened to trust and obey God with that one thing. So if you turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 27, let me give us a quick review. Paul has been arrested of the accusation that he's led a Gentile into the inner sanctum of the temple. That turns out not to be true. And he's been accused that he's been generally just dissing the temple, also not true. But that's why he's arrested. His case is heard before first a city magistrate, then before three different governors, before finally it is sent off, his case is to be heard by the emperor of Rome himself. So it's going big time, like the Supreme Court. So he hops on to a boat with Dr. Luke, another Christian named Aristarchus, and a Roman centurion named Julius, and off to Rome they go. Along the way, they pick up new passengers. They stop and they start at one point. They creep into storm season, and Paul warns them not to go any further. The crew, however, does, and they chose poorly. So we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 27, starting in verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they, that is the crew, began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and he said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And this angel said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a, sound, uh, a sounding and found 20 fathoms. And a little further, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run onto the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boats, it's like the sort of the dinghies, into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat, those dinghies, and let them go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing to eat. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke and he began to eat. And they were all encouraged, and they ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, left them at sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. 
The bow stuck and remained immovable. The stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. You'll see a little map of that behind me. The native people showed us unusual kindness there, for they kindled a fire, welcomed us all, because it began to rain and become cold. And Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. And a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the native people saw that the creature was hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt, this man's a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice will not allow him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire, suffered no harm, and they were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, He's a god. Now in the neighborhood of the place, that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and we were about to sail. They put us on board wherever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had been wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petuli. There we found the brothers, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they had heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. This is God's word. Now, if I'm going to trust and obey God on something that seems hard, prolonged, something that even at times seems unfair, why is this happening to me? I feel like I need a few things. Number one, I feel like I need to know that it's God who's calling me into this, that it's God who is calling me to obey. Number two, I, I want to be able to anticipate some of the challenges that lay ahead if I'm going to obey God on something hard. And thirdly, I want someone to make the case for why, how I can carry on in the midst of the challenges to obeying God on something hard. Like, give me some resources that will help me carry on to do something that's really hard to do, God. And thankfully, that's exactly what we get in Paul's trust-filled, obedient journey to Rome. We get the call, we get the challenges, and finally we get the case. First, the call. Knowing God is calling you to a, in a particular season, to a particular act of obedience, can be incredibly difficult to discern, right? It's murky. Is that you, God, who's telling me to do this? Or is that, or is that just me? Is that just me telling myself what I want to hear? Or is it that, that the voice of other people who want me to do something? Or is it you? Sorting through these questions may very well have been what Paul did as well. While staying in Ephesus, Paul says, chapter 19, verse 21, I must stay in Rome. I must get to Rome. We might think of, at this point, 
This is only a desire of Paul's, not necessarily one that was yet affirmed by God. I want to get to Rome. I want to go to Rome. This is an aim I have in my service as a missionary to God. But it wasn't yet affirmed by God. Is it, is it, is it God or is it just me who wants this? By the time we get to Acts 23, Jesus speaks to Paul personally, and he affirms this desire, saying, you must testify in Rome. Acts 23, verse 11. While on board this ship that we read about, the angel reinforces the message we just read, you must stand trial before Caesar. Two qualities of Paul's calling here. This calling to go to Rome, to obey, kind of help us, I think, figure out, God, is that really you? Is that really you who's calling me to this? First of all, the first quality we see And Paul's calling is that the call connects to God's larger purposes. Remember, if you would, all the way back to the beginning of our study in Acts, God's only command and commission in Acts, only direct command and commission in Acts is given by the risen Jesus to the apostles, right? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Paul's obedient submission to testify in Rome is a fulfillment to be a witness at the ends of the earth. The book of Acts actually, remember, follows this outline. It starts in Jerusalem. And then when it spreads out to Judea, the gospel goes, the good news goes to Judea. Then it gets to Samaria. And then basically the last half of Acts, more than the last half of Acts, is the ends of the earth. And it goes to the world's outpost, the earth's capital, the melting pot of Rome. The symbol and hub of the world. So Paul's call to go to Rome, see, lines up with God's greater purposes for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. It's not just random. It's not just, I have this desire, I've heard good things about Rome, so I want to go there. Or I have a cousin in Rome, so it'd be great to get there. Paul's calling lines up with God's larger purposes, and that is great wisdom for us as well. For some of us, there are no-brainer actions that are in line with God's larger purposes. For instance... Stop sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. All right? That, that, that is a clear calling from God that lines up with God's larger purposes. If you read Hebrews 13.4, for example, pretty blunt about people who are not your spouse should not be people you are sleeping with. That's like, like a no-brainer. But what simultaneously baffles us, this guys, grieves me, is when some of us make decisions without even thinking to connect it with God's larger purposes for us in our lives. For example, taking a job elsewhere only because it will advance your career and make you more money. And those are the reasons you take it. Without considering your family, uprooting your family maybe from a church in which they're thriving, or uprooting yourself from a community in which you're serving, giving, and growing. Because you think, well, you know what? I can just do that anywhere. I can grow anywhere. Not connecting that back to God's larger purposes for you to bear fruit as part of a community. Or maybe it's not attending church because it doesn't tick all the boxes for you. You can't find a church that fulfills all your needs. You just think, you know what, I think God's calling me to take a break from fellowship. To just take a break, kind of do my own thing. That's what God is saying. Without connecting that to God's larger purpose. If you read Hebrews chapter 10, for instance, it says, don't give up the habit of meeting together. Don't do it. We need to be spurring one another on constantly towards love and good deeds or emotionally withdrawing, even separating, or even getting to the point of divorcing a spouse because, quote, they don't make me happy 
and I really feel like God wants me to be happy. That's what he's calling me to. Not connected to God's larger purposes that we see blatantly in his word, Ephesians 5, that marriage isn't simply about being happy. It's about making you more holy. It's about making you more like Jesus. It's about living out the gospel to others even when things are really, really, really hard. Connect what you think God might be calling you to do back to the Bible. And if you're unsure of how to do that, ask a community group leader, ask an elder, ask a pastor how to do that. Now, Paul's case is a little different, admittedly. In his circumstance, he's arrested. So you could say, well, Paul really didn't have a choice in his obedience. Like, he pretty much had to go to Rome. But like a lot of inevitable choices in our own lives, we can either go willingly or we can go kicking and screaming. When the ship runs aground, Paul never tries to shiv the prison guard because he's innocent. He doesn't gather everyone and say, okay, if we have any trouble along the way, guys, I know I'm innocent. Let's just, let's just go like Harrison Ford, on the fugitive on this, okay, to the prison guards, Tommy Lee Jones. Right? It was the one-armed bam, I'm innocent. So let's take action. He never does this. Instead, Paul submits so willingly, so willingly, this is amazing, that, that Julius takes the handcuffs off Paul for medical attention, chapter 23, uh, 27, verse 3. Takes the handcuffs off Paul for days. And then another time, lets him go and be with friends for seven days, we see in verse 14 of chapter 28. Imagine that. First of all, imagine that with to let Paul and any prisoner get away would have been punishable by death. Yet it is so certain for a pagan man that Paul is willingly submitting to God in obedience that he's willing to let this man just go free for seven days. That is more certain than the handcuffs that he would wear. That's an amazing statement. That's how willing Paul was. That's how submitting, submissive Paul was to the will of God in his life. How willing would you be to submit to a wrongful arrest? What would we do? We'd have friends tell the compass about it, the came and compass about it. We'd try to get as many press releases out about it. We'd try to say, look, this has been unrighteous. But Paul willingly accepts God's call at great cost to him which is the second quality of Paul's call, and that is the call connects us to the cross. Any calling to obey Jesus, to know that, Jesus, is that you calling me to this? It will be connected to the cross. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his own cross, and follow me. That means if you want to respond to Jesus' call, you must respond to Jesus' cross with one of your own. It doesn't mean that whatever God is asking you to do, it's going to be impossible. It doesn't mean every difficult decision that you make, every call to obedience, that it's going to be all bad for you. But it does mean that God is asking you to lay down something of your life in it. For Paul, it was sacrificing comfort, dealing with an uncertain outcome, being misunderstood by all those people, think of it, who probably sat around and he knew were saying, man, did you hear about Paul? He was arrested. Can you believe it? Can you believe that guy? That was part of the cost for Paul to willingly submit and obey God. So if you're wondering, God, is that you? Are you calling me to this? You may also want to ask yourself, is there any cross in this? Is there anything of my life that I must lay down? So first, I want to know that it's God who's calling me to a hard decision. Next, I want to be able to anticipate and ready myself for the challenges that will inevitably come 
with obeying God in something hard. Let me point out two challenges in this story. Storms and judgment. We see storms and we see judgment. First storms, as with any storm, there's the actual storm, then there's the fear of it. Right? There is the looking and seeing the clouds approach, seeing the ominous sign coming your way, and the fear is almost worse than the storm itself. It's hard to underestimate how much Jews like Paul feared the open sea because of storms. Israel only had one natural harbor, and it was very remote. They made very poor sailors, and they had to basically outsource all their sailing to the Phoenicians because they were so poor at it. Every Jewish Christian reading, for instance, the opening line of Revelation 21 about the new heavens and the new earth would have rejoiced to hear the final line in that first verse, and the sea was no more. Like for, any, for, us, for us Gentiles, we're like, oh, sea, that's great. We love the sea. But to give God's people hope, he added into the new heavens, new earth, the sea will be no more. And everyone would have been like, oh, thank God. No sea represented certain trouble, possible death. Paul anticipates saying this during an encouraging speech. He says, but we must run aground on some island. In other words, there's a reason to fear. We are going to run aground. Fear causes us to seek control you'll never have, to distrust people who want your best, and to run when you should stay and to stay when you should run. These will all be temptations when obeying God doesn't yield immediate results. And you think to yourself, what have I done? I should have stuck to what I was doing. I should have taken that risk and obeyed God when things were a lot easier when I didn't. This is natural. And we'll learn in a minute how Paul stays so poised in the midst of all the storms going on around him for months. But there's also judgment. Judgment is another challenge that often comes up when you try to obey God in something hard. Not God's judgment, but man's. It's interesting, when prepping for a bonfire on this island called Malta, a viper bites Paul. We read about that, right? Must have been an amazing scene. You see this man who just gets bitten and shakes it off very calmly. The majority view this and they think, Paul must be a bad person. Look what's happened to him. He must be a bad person. But when he shakes it off, starts roasting his marshmallows, and nothing happens to him, he doesn't swell up like a big grape, they think the exact opposite, the other extreme. Oh, he must be a god. Notice the extremes there. He must be a murderer. He must be a bad person. But when the circumstances get much better, he must be a god. Now listen, obedience to God always yields fruit, but not necessarily long life with a big house and good kids. People, though, will always judge the latter. They always will. It's happened as long as we live. It happened to Paul. It will happen to us. It's happened for every century since. As you obey God, even Christians will judge you based on whether or not you're bit by a viper. Be like, look at that. Look what happened to him. You know why that is. Bad person. Bad things. Not obeying God. If nothing touches you, though, you'll be revered. If something comes crashing down, you'll be scorned, thought less of, even dismissed. So it's so easy to give up thinking, man, this obedience thing, it doesn't work. But with his life and his words, Paul makes the case for why it does work. Here's the case. The presence of God, the promise of God, and the persuasiveness of obedience. 
These are the resources God gives to make it worth trusting and obeying God, even through, guys, those hard challenges. God gives us this this briefcase, this portfolio of resources to say, here's what I'm going to give to you because I know you're going to encounter storms and people are going to judge you as you try something hard in your life. So first, the presence of God. We see that in verses 22 through 23. Look at that with me if you would. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, the God to whom I belong, the God whom I worship. The most important thing for Paul is to whom he belonged. That God who was with him, who made his presence known in this particular case by an angel. Sometimes it was by other brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes it was by a vision or through prayer. Paul knew that God was with him. Prior to the emancipation of slaves in the United States and the north part of the United States and the south part of the United States were divided over the issue of slavery. A certain northerner went to a slave auction. He purchases a slave girl. As they walked away from the auction, the man turns to the girl walking back to their home and says to her, I bought you, but now you're free. I'm letting you go. In amazement, she responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, the man said. Just to say whatever I say, yes. Even go wherever I go right now. He said, yes, you are free to go wherever you like. The woman looked at him and replied, well, then I'll go with you. Now listen, if if you have trusted your life to Jesus, you are free. You're free to do whatever you want. You're You're free to go wherever you want, I should say. You can even go an easier path the path of least resistance, but you won't go with the one who freed you from slavery to sin, death, and destruction. In Isaiah 43, verse 2, God says these famous words, you may have heard them before, when you pass through the waters, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Not if, not should you, but when you pass through the waters, when you walk through the fire, You will not be burned. Again, not if, but when. The implication is that deep waters and fire will find each of us, no matter which path of least resistance we try to take. It will find you. It's not a matter of if, but of when. So you might as well walk with the God who has saved you through it, because he is faithful to be with you all the way through those deep waters, through the scorching fire. And that's encouraging. Also, the resource, another resource God gives us to obey him in something hard are the promises of God. We see that, look with me here in verse 23, we'll read through verse 25. This very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. What's wonderful, guys, about obeying God is that every invitation to obey includes a do not fear clause. It's right there in the manual. As you're reading through the manual of how to do life and God is asking you to obey, there's also the do not fear clause in there. It's the the promise of God. So, for example, earlier 
I share with you the calling to follow Jesus, which includes the cross. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In the next breath, Jesus says this, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will actually find it. So the promise to step out, to get uncomfortable, to deny yourself and take up your cross and obeying God is you'll actually get life back to you. You think it'd be the opposite. You think it'd be just trying to secure your life to put a fence around it, to guard what you already have. That's the best way to have the best life. But Jesus says, no, it's the opposite. Lose it. And I promise you abundant life. I promise you life eternally. Even the hardest call to obey, the hardest invitation includes a do not fear clause. Tis so sweet by Louisa Stead. It's a hymn, a wonderful hymn. One of my favorite hymns we sung earlier, and we're going to sing again in a moment. At a young age, Louisa just sensed God inviting her into missionary service to serve God by going overseas and telling people who didn't yet know about Jesus about him and his good news. That's what being a missionary is. She got married, though, had a child, and she put off urging her family towards missions. Her life changed one day, though, when enjoying a picnic on the Long Island Sound with her husband and her one daughter, Lily. Her husband spotted in the distance a young boy who was struggling to swim. So he dropped everything, jumped in the water, swam out to him. And like many people who are, who are drowning, flailing, oftentimes the rescuer goes under with him, and he did. And he never came back up, neither he nor the boy. Soon after, she penned these words. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I love him. How I trust him. How I proved him o'er and o'er. It's an interesting line that she writes there how I've proved him over and over. She would spend the rest of her life proving God over and over. Guys, you see, you can test God's promise with your obedience, and that's how you grow to trust him more and more, by testing his promise with your obedience. There's no other way. Louisa proved him. She tested his promises by responding in obedience to the call to missions. She moved with her one daughter, Lily, to Cape Colony, South Africa, where she served as a missionary for the next 15 years, and God provided for every one of her needs, provided for another husband, and the wonderful life of serving him. The promise of God inspires Paul to prove him o'er and o'er. He exhorts these experienced sailors not to let down the dinghies, even though they think better of it, even though they think this is the best option for them. He says, don't do it. Trust God's promise. He's going to save us all. Go ahead and eat during the storm like it's a normal day. It's no problem because we can trust God's promise. And in doing so, he proves God's promise. Right? The vessel does run aground. No one, in fact, dies. All arrive safely to Rome. Louisa Stead died in 1917. Her obedient response to God's calling deeply affected those around her 
in Cape Colony and also uh, Rhodesia, modern-day Zimbabwe, where she later spent some time. These communities put her hymns to paper. They circulated it. And now we get to sing it today because it became famous. So we're reminded, too, about the persuasiveness of obedience. Not only Louise's life, but also the Apostle Paul. We are encouraged to know that by obeying God, others might see and respond in their life. Paul tells these men, take heart for I have faith in God. It will be exactly as I have been told. Not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. He exudes this confidence, observing his confidence in God over the open sea. His confidence in God over the waves that are coming that seem far more obvious. They are persuaded as he obeys. They begin to listen to Paul for the most experienced sailors to the point where the soldiers cut loose those dinghies. Their only hope of emergency escape. They eat upon watching Paul eat. They save Paul's life and everyone around him, even though the protocol would be to kill all the unbound criminals who are about to get loose. And we're going to have to be killed because we let them loose. See how persuasive Paul's confidence and obedience is. I want to be that kind of person, guys, who so obeys God in the hard things that it persuades others. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. So I want to exhort you, friends, spend your life proving his promises, starting with the one action point that you wrote down this morning. Let's pray. God, we simply ask you this morning to help us be the kind of people who trust and obey even when we know it's hard even when we know it will cost us, even though we know there's a cross attached to it. We recognize that there are going to be storms in life and judgment from man as a result of stepping out and doing what the world doesn't do. Help us, though, walk satisfied with you through the challenges, proving your promises through our day-by-day obedience. And may those around us take notice And one day sing with us, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Amen.